Well, turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Colossians, chapter 3. For those of you that are just joining us, we have been on a series called Unhindered, where we've been talking about what it means to live an unhindered, godly life, the life that intentionally chooses to put off the old way of thinking and to put on the mind of Christ. And then starting in chapter 3, Paul reiterates that thought. He says, if you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. And I mention this because the rest of this chapter, along with chapter 4, is Paul giving us instruction on how we should live the Christian life. But first, I want you to remember that nothing really changes until the mind does. I mean, you can have all of the, the right instruction in the world, but if you don't first renew your mind, it's like having GPS without a satellite signal. Like, you won't know which way to go. And so as we dive into today's text, it's crucial that you build these instructions upon a solid foundation. I'm talking about us having a mind that thinks differently than the world, and as a result, will cause us to live and act differently than the world. Now, let me just say that we always have people coming into our church body who are new and didn't hear the previous messages that's leading up to what I just said. So allow me, if I could, to just kind of shore up our foundation a little and give some understanding to, to what I mean when I say to think differently than the world. You see, the Apostle Paul, who, who wrote the book that we're studying here, the book of, of Colossians, he also wrote about a dozen more letters, and one of them was the book of Philippians. And in that book, he writes, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. This is Philippians 4, 8. And we went into particular uh, detail about every aspect of this verse a few weeks ago, so you can go back and, and listen to that. And, um, but I bring it up again for those that are just joining us, but also as a reminder to the rest of us that this verse right here, this is to be our litmus test. In other words, if what we allow into our lives the, the movies that we watch, the music that we listen to, the, the books that we read, the conversations that we allow, if they don't fit the Philippians 4, 8 test, then we need to treat those thoughts like a thief who is trying to break into our house. Are y'all with me? Why? Because the world's way of thinking will rob you of the life that God has purposed. In 2 Corinthians 10 to verse 5, Paul authors another letter where he says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that's raised against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to obey Christ. Now, what does it mean to take every thought captive? 
Well, first of all, it means that you take control of the thought. The thought doesn't take control over you. Church, how many of you know that you don't have to allow every thought that comes your way to live there? How many of you know what squatters are? Anyone? Like squatters are people who try and take up residence on someone else's property without the permission of that owner. And in most every instance, they're trying to move into like a vacant home or a building. Now, I know that this may sound absurd, but it's true. And that is that squatters actually have rights. They, they call them squatters' rights, which means that you can't just go simply uh, change the locks or have the, the sheriff uh, throw them out of the house. You have to go through the legal system if you want them to get off of your property. Now, why am I telling you this? Because there are a lot of people who have thoughts that have been squatting in their minds for years. And they've tried to do things about it. I mean, they took the pills that the doctor prescribed to get those thoughts to leave. But it didn't work. They've read every self-help book they could from the trendiest gurus. But it didn't empower them. They kept their liquor cabinet full. But... They were still empty on the inside, plagued by thoughts of not being good enough or not measuring up and not feeling worthy. And these thoughts, they have squatted in people's minds, and they felt powerless to be able to evict them. But the good news is, is just like squatters can be legally removed from a property, these negative, destructive thoughts can be evicted from your mind as well. How? By taking them captive and making them obey Christ. See, your mind is not a free-for-all zone where any thought can just take up resonance within yourself. No, not without your consent. And you have the authority as a believer, as a son and daughter of Christ, to take control over your thoughts. Like you get to decide what stays and what goes. Some of you, you need to treat some of those toxic thoughts that you have allowed to sneak in to treat them like the intruders that they are. Don't let them steal your joy. Don't let them steal your peace, your self of sense, uh, self, a sense of self-worth, but instead replace them with those thoughts that we just read about in Philippians 4 and verse 8. Replace them with truth. See, in almost every instance where a squatter moved in, the home was vacant. Church, catch this. Demons look for places that are unoccupied. You say, well, Pastor, hold on a minute. I, I thought we were talking about thoughts here, not demons. Well, where do you think that those worldly thoughts come from? I mean, they don't come from God. Listen, just like we can be inspired by the Holy Spirit, the devil wants to use everything in his arsenal to try and influence our minds. Talking about worldly doubts, fears, intimidations, temptations. Like those things, they don't originate from God. They are lies that come from our adversary who's seeking to occupy the vacant spaces in our minds. Let me read you this, and then I promise that we'll get into Colossians. In Matthew 12, verse 43 and 45, 
Jesus addresses this very thing that we're talking about right here. He said, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places, seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house, watch this, unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and it takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. Honestly, this verse right here is probably deserving of its own message. But I want you to grab hold of one key thing that Jesus mentions right here. He talks about an impure spirit looking for an unoccupied house. Now, do you understand why I said that demons Look for places that are unoccupied. See, church, the battle for our mind, it is real. But God has empowered us to take captive everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And so on a very practical note, let me just rephrase everything that I just said so that you can catch it. Every time that you spend, time, uh, spend in God's word meditating on his truths, you ensure that your spiritual house is occupied, that it's occupied with his promises, with his occupied by the truth of who he is, the truth of who you are. And that means that there's no vacant space for those negative thoughts to come into squat. Amen? Okay, you've been in Colossians 3 for about 10 minutes now. So um, why don't we pick back up where we left off last week? Colossians chapter 3 and verse 18. This is exactly where we left off last week. And the scripture says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, if I were a cherry-picking pastor, I can promise you this right here would have been the one that I would have skipped. And um, I do feel the need to at least throw out a disclaimer for those that are our guests that's thinking, really, is that the message for today? Well, understand this, guests, those that are here and uh, you know this, but we go through the Bible verse by verse. We ended on chapter 17 last week. We're, I'm sorry, verse 17 last week. We're on verse 18 this week. And there are going to be times that we come up against things that I'll be honest with you, most pastors, they will just skip, such as Colossians 3.8. But I just got to tell you that I actually love tackling those verses that are controversial because what I have found is that, first of all, uh, churches either ignore those verses or they have taught them wrongly. And the verse that we're talking about today, man, is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Now, we're going to continue to examine verse 18, but like I mentioned to you last week, anytime you just jump right in and read a scripture, don't just stop right there, but look at the context of what the text is saying. So we're going to go ahead and just continue reading a few more verses. Verse 19 and 20 says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now, if you were following along in your Bible, then you're likely to have had, like my Bible has, a little subtitle that talks about that paragraph that you just read. And in mine, it says instructions for Christian households. Um, yours likely says something like that. And that's exactly what Paul's doing here. He's laying how we should live this new life that we now have in Christ. And he begins with this 
section to tell their wives to, that they should submit to their husbands. But let me just say that this verse right here is taken out of context perhaps more than any other verse in the Bible. So we're going to dive into this this morning, amen? Because I've seen this verse right here be used by men who expect subjugation from their wives. But let me tell you something. Paul is not telling wives that they should follow their husbands with blind obedience. Not at all. As a matter of fact, the word submit in the Greek is the word hupotasso. And it conveys the idea of voluntarily placing oneself under another's authority. And it's a choice that's made out of respect and trust, not coercion. And so, ladies, whenever Paul speaks of submission, he's highlighting the beauty of the wife's willingness to partner with her husband and to collaborate in unity, recognizing his role as the head of the house. And it's a mutual partnership that brings harmony to the family. Now, this is much different than it's taught in a lot of churches, and it's much different than how the world sees submission. You see, both have taught this misconstrued idea of submission as if it's this thing of weakness or subservience and, or even oppression. And it's often associated with surrendering one's power or losing one's identity. And this worldly perception has led to many people resisting the idea of submission, and particularly where it comes to the context of marriage. However, whenever we turn to God's perspective, it looks nothing like the world's. Imagine that. <laughs> Submission never implies inferiority or the loss of one's identity, but instead it conveys the idea of one's willingness to align themselves under someone else's authority. And it's like being part of a team where each member has a unique role and function contributing to the greater good of the whole. Now hear me on this. Never does biblical submission equate to oppression or inequality. And I have to say that this particular verse gets my blood pumping because I have witnessed countless ladies who have been on the receiving end of an oppressive husband, or even in an oppressive church leader. And as a result, they've not been allowed to carry out their God-ordained calling. Thankfully, we have not seen much of that. I, don't, I can't even think of any instance of that here at Destiny Church. Uh, if I had, then, um, well, I won't say what I'll do. We'll just save that for an element of surprise in case any of you men get froggy, all right? But... Um, I am a black belt. Did I remind you guys of that? I'll just remind you of that. And if you're tougher than me, I'm a great shot. So you better take care of those ladies. <laughs> Edit that from the film. <laughs> Let me bring your attention to something to really help explain the concept of submission. Because I really want to teach this well. The Greek word that I, I taught here earlier, hupotasso, it's also used in other places in the Bible. As a matter of fact, one place that it's used, and I think this helps bring a little bit of an understanding because when you start looking at this word hupotasso in reference to uh, our, our wives, it's mentioned in Luke chapter 2, which many of you are going to be reading 
during Christmas. Luke chapter 2 and verse 51 uses it. It says this, it says, and he, speaking of Jesus, went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them, hupatasso to them, talking about Mary and Joseph. And his mother treasured up all those things in her heart. See, the scripture says that even God, the son of God, Jesus, willingly placed himself, willingly placed himself under their authority. And why did he do that? Because he understood the significance of biblical submission. And he understood what that submission was to look like. As a matter of fact, the same Greek word that we're talking about for submission is also used in another place. It's used in Ephesians 5, verse 21, where it says that we are to submit ourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. So this isn't just something that's exclusive to wives. Are are you with me? Because the Bible teaches that we are to all, hupatasso, submit ourselves one to another. The reality is our relationships, and I'm particularly in a marriage, but they're to be defined by mutual respect, by both partners honoring and valuing each other as equals in the eyes of God, respecting each other's opinions, feelings, and ideas. Look, there's never to be mavericks in a marriage. You see, mutual submission means listening to each other and making decisions as a team. Both spouses should feel comfortable with being able to share their thoughts, and their concerns, and their desires. Now, on the flip side, I have seen the knee-jerk reaction in many relationships where maybe the wife has swung the pendulum so far that she refused to listen to anything that her husband had to say. Either that or she used manipulation to get what she wanted. You can always tell the husband of those women because they kind of act like a dog that's been beat their whole life. It's like they can't have any thoughts of their own, and if they ever do have a thought, they have to make sure that they run it before their wife, before they can share it. But God wants there to be a strong, godly wife in the marriage who willingly partners with her husband, and he wants there to be a strong, godly husband who loves his wife. Let's read verse 19 again. Paul said, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. To be harsh with them means to not make them angry to the point to where it causes her to become bitter. Husbands, do you know that how you treat your wives, it can cause her to either become bitter or better? You say, then how am I supposed to treat her? Well, I'm glad you asked. Paul wrote a letter to the church of Ephesus, where he addressed the same thing that he addressed to the people of Colossae. And in Ephesians 5, 25, he said, Husband, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, that's a tall order right here. Because Christ's love is one that was marked by death. Hey, greater love has there than no man than one lay his life down for his friends. You see, the word that's used here in in Colossians chapter 3, it's the Greek word agape. And agape goes beyond mere emotion. It's a selfless, sacrificial love that looks at the well-being of the other person. 
And husbands, this is the kind of love that we're to have for our wife. One that mirrors Christ's love for his church, being ready to lay down his life for her. And I'm sure just as as surely as I say that, I know there's going to be men who would say, babe, I would take a bullet for you. And, you know, that's commendable. But really, the kind of death that that Paul is, is talking about here isn't just taking a bullet. He's talking about dying to yourself. Dying to your own desires, preferences, and pride. It's about you putting your wife's needs and well-being ahead of your own. It means that you're actively seeking out her happiness, and and not just in words, but in action. Like practically, it means being a listening ear whenever she needs to talk. It means being patient and understanding whenever she's going through a difficult time, even if you don't understand. It means taking the time to appreciate her and express your love regularly, and not just when it's convenient. Now, again, just as I said to the wives, this kind of love isn't about being a doorman or losing your own identity. It's about being a loving, supportive partner who values your wife as an equal and treats her with the utmost respect. Husband, it's about prioritizing your wife's emotional and spiritual well-being, not just making this grand gesture as a lot of men often do. Now, what I mean by that is often see men who they don't show uh, their love and affection that their wife needs. And so they think that they can just make up for it by going and buying them a diamond earrings or a new car or taking them on an exotic vacation. And while I'm sure that your wives wouldn't mind any of those things, right, ladies? Um, (laughs) Really what it's about, it's about creating a consistent pattern of putting her needs before your own. Gentlemen, let me just give you some practical examples of what I'm talking about here. And if you're already doing these things, then you can just go ahead and share and say amen as I share them. But one way that we show our wives that we love them is by spending quality time together. Like you be the one to make the initiative to plan a date or an activity that you guys both enjoy. And whenever you're together, make her feel valued and cherished by giving her your undivided attention. Leave that thing in the truck. Are you, unless you're on call, leave that thing in the truck. This could, here's some more practical examples. Taking care of household chores. I, I had one wife who says, yes. Yes, and my men are all like, really, Pastor, can we just get on to the kids obeying their parents next? Because I know that's coming up at some point. We'll get there. Don't worry. What about this, cooking a meal? Come on. One man says, hey, man, I, I, I can grill. I can cook. <laughs> or helping out with the children. Like, watch this, guys. These acts of service that we're talking about here, this can speak volumes of your love to your wife. Here's another way that you can show your wife love. Compliment her. I can promise you I have yet to meet a lady who doesn't appreciate a good, genuine compliment. Complimenter shoes, I learned that one. That one's free. Always look, and if they're nice shoes, those are good shoes. Then she knows you're paying attention, all right? But acknowledge her strengths. 
Reassure her of your commitment. Don't be the guy that says, well, bless God, I, I told you once that I loved you. If I ever change my mind, I'll let you know. Don't be that guy. <laughs> All right? But even beyond compliments, support her dreams. Encourage her aspirations. Call out the greatness that you see in her. Got matter of fact, this just goes for husbands and wives. If there's something that you don't like in your spouse, call out the greatness within him. I said this many years ago in a relationship talk, but I said every guy has within him a prince and a punk. And oftentimes, the ones you get is the one that you speak to. Call out the greatness. You say, man, there's not a whole lot that I can see there. Well, guess what? They are part of the imago Deo, the image of God. I promise you that there's something good in there. Even if it's just a little bit. Well, call out that little bit and work with that little bit that you got. You know, I don't always get it right, but this is one area right here that God has brought a lot of growth for me. And what I mean by that is if you were to ask my wife, and and she's here listening to this, so you can test this, but um, who's your biggest cheerleader? I actually asked her last night just to make sure that I knew the answer. I ain't going to get up here and share that unless, so disclaimer. But I said, who's your biggest cheerleader? And she goes, well, that's you. Why? Because I'm very intentional about encouraging her goals and her passions. Can I just tell you something, guys? When you do that, it will pay dividends for you in so many ways, like in some really nice ways, right? But then, like, also, (laughs) and some of y'all got that. You're like, what's he talking about? (laughs) Glad the teenagers are like, what's he talking about? (laughs) Yeah talking about emotional connection, teenagers, all right? The emotional connection that it, that it pays. But the greatest deposit is this. The greatest deposit that you could ever make is by making and showing spiritual leadership. That means praying together, attending church together. You're here with your spouse today. Congratulations. That's, that's awesome. And serving together. That will bring closeness unlike anything that you could possibly do. And lastly, and this one is huge, apologize and offer forgiveness. Look, no one is perfect, and conflicts are a part of any relationship. And whenever you make mistakes or um, hurt or feelings, be quick to apologize. And likewise, be quick to forgive whenever she asks for your forgiveness. Husbands, if you will constantly practice these principles, you will cultivate a loving, lasting, and thriving marriage. Now, last but not least, Paul says in Colossians 3.20, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Not to like this right here is another verse that has been misunderstood. And so, uh, teenagers, you're going to like what this has to say, okay? I know I'm giving you guys a bunch of Greek words this morning, but it's just so that you will understand that anytime you hear a word in English, we have in mind the English definition that we have learned, okay? But oftentimes, whenever it comes to translating a, a word from another language, oftentimes things get missed in that translation. And so, for example, the word obey is the Greek word hupakao. I said that slow to make sure I got it right for my scholars in the room. (laughs) Hupakao. 
Aren't you glad that you don't have to know Greek to get into heaven? Come on, man. And it means to listen to attentively and to obey and to submit willingly. Now, young people, that doesn't mean blind obedience without question. I have taught my kids, you can ask a question. But there's a difference between asking a question and questioning. Are you with me? See, the obedience that Paul's talking about here means that you're to respect your parents' authority and follow their guidance because they have your best interests at heart. It means honoring them by showing gratitude and being receptive to their wisdom. Now, young people, here's what you need to know about being obedient. Unless they are asking you to do something that is illegal, unethical, or immoral, your obligation is to be compliant with what your parents ask of you. And I know that some of you probably feel like that it's illegal for the parents to make you wash dishes. It's not. And that cleaning your room before you do anything else feels like it's unethical. It's not. Or that feeding the dog or treating your siblings kind or doing your homework appears as if it's immoral. It's not. But I want to bring your attention to something that you may not realize that the Bible says. Now, I'm speaking to you right here now for my teenagers and under. It says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. When you are obedient to your parents, the Bible says that you please the Lord. As a matter of fact, remember earlier I, I read uh, part of what Paul said to the Ephesians, you know, about the wives? Well, he also had something to say about the children in that same chapter. In Ephesians 6, 1 and 3, he wrote, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. You know, in my 25 years of ministry, I've had a lot of people come up to me and say, hey, is there anything that I can do to ensure a long life? And my answer is always the same, yes, honor your parents, because that's what the Bible says. Now, I know that the majority of you in this room aren't children, and maybe you're thinking, well, how does this apply to me? Listen, you could be 50 years old and still honor your parents. How? One way would be just to simply call them every once in a while and check up on them. Look, I know that it's easy to get our schedule so busy that we forget to do certain things, but there are some things that just need to be set as a priority in our lives. And showing honor, that's one of them. And I know that many of our parents have already passed away, but you can still honor them. I mean... You can honor them in your words by speaking good of them and not bad, like even if there's not a lot of good. But young people, the promise in Ephesians 6, this is especially for you and for many reasons. There was a uh, Kentucky preacher once who was reading from the KFC version of the Bible. Yeah, some of y'all get that a little later on. And he said, kids, you better obey your ma and pa or they're going to give the board of education to the seed of understanding. How many of y'all know about that board? 
Yeah, and it'll cause you to get some learning real quick, right? Which, by the way, what we're talking about it, guys, discipline is not a bad thing. My wife's up here, you're saying, yes, yes, yes. It is not a bad thing. The only time it's a bad thing is when you don't do it. Proverbs 3 tells us that a father corrects. He disciplines the son in whom he loves. So if you're not disciplining your children, you don't love them. Now, don't get mad at the messenger. That's what God's word says. Matter of fact, not only does it tell us as earthly fathers that, but how many of you know this is true of our heavenly father as well in the way that he treats us? Listen to what the scripture says in Hebrews 12, 6, and 11. It says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Isn't that interesting? So God isn't asking us to do something that he doesn't also do. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Well, he probably didn't write that in 2023 because we know that there's a lot who don't because we can see that in the way that the kids act. Get them off Ritalin and, and spank their butt and watch how they change. Somebody's like, yes, amen. Thank you for saying that. Some of you guys goes, I can't believe that he said that. Well, look, how about obey or try, try God's word before giving him a pill and just see if it works? How, how about just test the Lord and see if it works first? How about that? Hmm? Bible says, if you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. Now, pay special attention to this part right here. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Well, parents, I get it because the painfulness isn't just from the kids, but look, it's painful when I have to discipline my children. I'd rather not have to do that, but I also know that I have to, or else they're going to end up being hellions, right? For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, did you catch that? It says that all discipline, it seems painful rather than pleasant. Then it says that later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Parents, if you still have children under your roof, if you love them, discipline them. Children, if your parents discipline you, know that they love you and you're not going to like it, okay? But honor them. And watch how God will use that thing that you don't like to produce growth in your life. Now, last but not least, worship team, you guys can come up with me. Colossians 3.21 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now, I find it interesting that Paul goes back to the men and not to the women when he says, don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. That word discouraged right there, if you look it up, it means 
broken-spirited. Now, I get why Paul addresses this particular point right here to the men. I mean, whenever I look in the mirror, I have to be honest with myself and, and recognize that I have a big personality, which works for me in a, a lot of different ways, but when it comes to being a dad, I have to make a shift. Why? Because I have three teenage girls, and that means that I have to work hard to temper that big personality, which I don't always do a great job at. My girls will, will tell you. I try. And so I think that's why Paul emphasizes this to the dads. By the way, let me just speak to the dads in the room just for a moment, if I could. You play a pivotal role in the development and spiritual development of your children. Like your actions and your words, they have a profound impact on their life. I'm going to share just with you a few um, case studies that I came across. One of them is from the Baptist Press, and here's what they found. They found that when kids come to Christ first, 3.5% of families will then follow. When moms, they, they come to Christ first, 17% of families will follow. But when dad comes to Christ first, 93% of families will follow. Now, man, if that doesn't get your attention, then you're asleep, and it's time to wake up. The Promise Keepers did another research several years ago and found that a child who was not raised in church, this is a child who was not raised by neither mom nor dad in church, only has a 6% chance of going to church once they become an adult. When mom, just mom, takes the kids to church, that number climbed to 15%, meaning that 15% of those children will remain churchgoers after they become adults. But when dad took an active role in taking the family to church, the number of those who continue going once they become adults jumps up to 75%. Now, I'm sharing this with you. Because a father's impact on their kids' faith and practice is huge. But I want to say that it's not just about taking them to church, but it's about imitating the love of Christ in everything that we do. Because if you act like a saint at church, but then you go home and live like the devil, I can promise you that that will push them further away from Christ than anything. Again, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged, lest they become broken in spirit. You say, Pastor, what does it mean to not provoke? To not provoke your children means to not cause them to become bitter or crushed in their spirits through harshness, excessive demands, or unrealistic expectations. But instead, we're to discipline them in love. We're to set boundaries when, while at the same time maintaining a, a tender approach. The practical ways that you can avoid provoking your children would be simply spend time with them. Listen to their concerns. Show them that you value their thoughts and their feelings. 
Encourage them to ask questions and, and be patient whenever they make mistakes because they will make mistakes. But when they do, guide them with grace and discipline. And remember, discipline is always meant for restoration, not just punishment. Now, on that note, let me just end with this. Just like a father desires good things for his child, your heavenly father desires good things for you. As a matter of fact, the Bible says no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Now, maybe you're here and you didn't realize who God really was. Like perhaps uh, maybe you thought that God was just someone who was just ready to nail you every single time that you made a mistake. Or perhaps you're here and you're a deist, meaning that you, like you believe that, that there's a God and he created the word. You just believe that he doesn't take an active role in the affairs of humanity. Well, guess what? Neither one of those things could be further from the truth. One of God's names, and you'll hear this a lot throughout Christmas, is Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. Our God is a very present help in the time of trouble. And he isn't waiting until we get our act together before he moves on our behalf. See, the truth is, we can't get our act together, not without God. And so God extends his grace to us. And he's already shown us his love by sending his son, Jesus, to come and to die for our sins. Which means that God accepts us just as we are. But the good news is that he doesn't leave us in the condition in which he found us. No, he wants to do a good work in our life. He wants you to live a life of purpose, one that brings joy, that brings peace and contentment. But you have to trust that God is who he says that he is, that he is the creator of heaven and earth who loves you, more than you could ever possibly imagine. Can I just tell you that you don't even have the capacity in your cerebral cortex to really understand the greatness of God. You can't. I mean, the Bible says this, now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ever ask or think. You don't even have the capacity to exaggerate God's love. That's how great his love is. And as a minister of the gospel, I tell you right now that you can receive his love, you can receive his grace, you can receive his acceptance, and you can do that right now. All you have to do is choose to put your faith in him. The Bible says to choose this day, not tomorrow nor next week or some point down the road, choose this day whom you're going to serve. And I want to ask this morning, who is here and you have not made that decision yet to surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Friend, I'm going to tell you two things. One, it's the greatest decision you'll ever make because only Jesus, the Prince of Peace, can give you true peace. Only Jesus can give you purpose for life. Only Jesus can put together the brokenness and the, and, and the shattered pieces that, that, that you have had all over you, you can try, like the woman at the well, and, and, and go and do everything that you can do. You can pop every pill. You can talk to every self-help guru like we talked about. Only Jesus can fix our broken, sinful condition. 
Only Jesus can do that, and he wants to do that. But the second thing is this. Only Jesus can give the promise of heaven. Friends, the older I get, I become more and more aware of the reality that we're all going to breathe our last breath one day. Like, here's your statistic. One out of one dies. Okay? And we don't know when that day is. None of us know when that day is. None of us have the promise that next week when we come back that every one of us in this room will be alive. We don't have that promise. And so I think that's the reason that the Bible says choose this day who you're going to serve. And I've been in so many meetings like this where I present this invitation. There's people out there, yeah, I don't know, and they put it off. But can I tell you something? Putting it off is saying no. It really is. You say, well, no, I'm not just saying no. I'm just saying no. You're saying no. An indecision is a decision. And so I want to, as a minister of the gospel, present this opportunity for those of you who right now, you can make Jesus the Lord of your life. And what that means is, is that every mark that has been written against you, the Bible says that he will take those marks. He will throw that debt into the sea of forgetfulness. Never to be brought up again. And it says that the blood of Jesus, which was shed on your behalf, it will wash us white as snow. Friends, that's good news. That's good news that every morning when you wake up, you know you've got the promise of heaven. But you've also got the promise of Emmanuel, God with us. And so if that is you, and there's been some area in your life, maybe you've believed in God. Maybe you've went to church, but you have just not fully confessed him as Lord meaning that he's number one. I'm going to give you that opportunity right now. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer. So everyone right now with your head bowed, eyes closed, I'm going to ask if that's you this morning, you say, I want Jesus to be the Lord of my life. I want that right now. I make that choice right now. If that's you, put your hand up. Raise it up, would you? Put it up. Yeah. Okay, okay. Who else? Put your hand up. Who else? We're going to pray right now. We're going to confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord believing in our heart that God raised him from the dead, and the scripture says we will be saved. Anyone else? And then we're going to pray. And this is also true for those of you that are watching online. I invite you to pray with me right now. This is just like a wedding where you go and you say your vow, and then you go and you live a life together. You're saying that vow right now to God. God, I give you my all. That's you right now. Join in with me. Pray this prayer from the body of your heart. Saints of God, join in with us. We're going to all pray this prayer, prayer out loud together. Pray, Lord Jesus, I confess my need for a Savior. Now I ask you, Lord, be my Savior. Forgive me of my sin. Help me to turn from it. Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God, and that you died on the cross for the sin of the world. Jesus, I believe that you rose from the grave just as your word says. And now I want to live my life to know you, to make you known in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.